Hello folks and welcome back to the High Performance Human Podcast. I'm your host Simon Ward and each week I'm joined by guests to share knowledge and wisdom to help you on your journey to living longer, living healthier and of course improving your triathlon performance. Before I introduce you to this week's guest, I'd like to dedicate this show to a long-time friend of mine who passed away recently. Eric Blakey was a big character in all senses. If you ever saw him, he looked more like a rower or a rugby union number eight, and he definitely was not built for triathlon. But that didn't stop him. I could share so many stories about Eric, but one of my favourites is this one, which highlights his never-quit attitude. It took 30 attempts for him to gain that coveted, Ironman World Championship qualification spot in Hawaii and even then it was by out sprinting his nearest competitor in the finishing shoot to get the last roll down spot at Ironman Canada. His final Kona race was 2018 when he got to share the start line with his son Alan, an accomplished triathlete in his own right. I was lucky enough to be there that day and I have a fabulous photo of them after they both finished in the athlete's garden. I have a link to this photo in my show notes. And if you knew Eric, please feel free to go there and add some comments about the good memories you have. I know that his family would love to read any of the stories that you care to share. Okay, so on to today's guest, who is David Bailey, an exercise physiologist who originally I met when I was, he was working for English Institute of Sport at Loughborough. From there, he moved to British Cycling in Manchester and eventually to Switzerland, to work for Nestle on their Power Bar project. And finally, back into cycling, working directly with the BMC and then the Bahrain Merida cycling teams. We'll get into all of this in our conversation. So let's get cracking and have a chat with Dave. Welcome to the show, Dave Bailey. It's been a long time. It has. Thanks. Thanks so much. It's great to uh, to speak to you and, and see you after all these years. Yeah. and. I mean, it has been a long time, and it? it? Must be at least ten years, but more like fifteen, probably in the mid mid two thousands when you were in Loughborough. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it was. Uh, I've been here in Switzerland for ten years now, so it's at least ten. And I would have thought, yeah, you could add a couple on top of that for the transition. So yeah, good to well, see should, you. Good to see you. Well, we should probably um, let the audience know about how we started working together, and that will give everybody a little sense of your back backstory and how you came to be over in Switzerland now. So um, back in the early 2000s, I was based in Leeds. Jack Maitland and I were running the Talent ID program. And one of the athletes that I was working with, Dan Brooke, uh, was a student at Loughborough, training in the squad that was at Loughborough. And you were working, were you working with EIS or are you working with part of Loughborough University? Uh, EIS, I'd studied at Loughborough and finished my PhD and postdoc. And then I'd moved to EIS at that time when all the institutes were up and coming, yeah. Mm, so you and actually Dan got you and Dan got along very well, didn't you? So um, rather than Dan being carried along by the the, the squad there, um, Dan used to come and do a bit of work with you in the lab. That's right. Yeah, there was. I was working in the first time with the US multi sport role. It was a little bit of with canoeing, uh, flat water and white water, and, and and some swimming, and then a proportion with triathlon. And at the time, that was the national one of the national centres, and, and Dan was one of the development athletes, I think, and and. That was in the era of people like Michelle Dillon and, and Andrew Johns, who I actually see a lot now because he lives here. But yeah, Dan was one of the one of the guys he used to work with, and he'd come into the lab and do some sessions that you'd set him, or I'd go up to the track and, and monitor them, you know, save you having to drive down from Leeds. I, I do remember one particular thing actually 
Um, it was after Athens Olympics, so it would have been post-2004. And this might answer questions that a lot of people have about cadence and cycling and whether it's better to adopt a lower cadence or a higher cadence. Um, you used to have a little rig set up on this huge industrial treadmill, I remember, and, the, and they used to get on there. I think they had a harness as well, just in case they lost the balance. But rather than cycling on a, an indoor trainer or an ergometer, they used to cycle their own bikes on this, in this huge, great big treadmill. And you had got a simulation of the Athens course that had been uh, done in the Olympics. And you got power traces for, I think, probably for Andrew Johns, who you just mentioned. And you'd given Dan the opportunity to see, because um, Dan, Dan was probably in his early 20s then, so moving in under 23, but thinking of moving up into the right, yeah. sort of pro ranks. Get, you gave Dan the opportunity to see what was required to ride at the pace of the Olympic peloton there in the triathlon. And uh, I remember him, if, if my memory serves me correctly, him saying that if he was pedaling at a low cadence and pushing a big wattage, he could keep up. But when you said to him, right, now try and pedal at the cadence that they were operating at, um, yeah. his heart rate went sky high. And I remember yeah. you trying to explain that to me. And I think it was something to do with kinetic energy. But please, please sort of tell me the theory and the reality behind all that. Oh, geez. You take me back there. That was uh, probably one of the first iterations of a, of, a, of an indoor treadmill for cycling. Yeah, it's, um, I did some work that led on to some work that when I then moved to Manchester to work British Cycling, where we developed a, the same treadmill, which was a two meter long, meter wide, had a steel bed. It was originally designed so that wheelchairs could go on it, but you could also cycle on it. And then I set up a system with, with light beams that you could roll the bike forwards or backwards, to, to, and then you get, like you say, a playback of a course. Of course, you can go out and buy these devices now, and with the virtual training environments that are commercially available, it's all old news, but at the time it was relatively new. And um, yeah, for, for, for the cyclists, we use it for like the preparation to Beijing and then with the triathletes and the young guys, it was an opportunity to replicate those course demands. But in, in terms of cadence, it's a, it's, a, it's a perennial debate as to what the best cadence is. And it's, it's the, the simple fact is that within a certain range, there isn't a lot of scientific evidence to say whether there's an advantage or disadvantage. And I'm talking like between 60 and 120, for example. But at the higher cadences, you get a bigger cardiovascular stress. So the, 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 and that's to do with just the, the, the stimulus required to, to contract and relax the muscles that quickly. And with training and time, you can um, see that drop. And, and that's the point in that range of 60 to 120, you can become optimal at any cadence across there. The scenario around running a higher cadence in, in cycling and triathlon is that, um, first of all, you, in essence, you're doing less work per contraction. And then on top of that, you are able to respond to accelerations out of corners or if someone else attacked. If you're overgeared, if you're running a, a cadence less than 80, you are you know, putting more force in per revolution. And then it's very hard to react and, and respond where you need to change that cadence. That's often why mountain bikers, for example, make quite good cyclists and very smooth. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's still not fully understood, but you can see even in professional cycling that they use a range of cadences. So if you were um, in a race where there was lots of turns, um, pedaling a higher cadence might be more advantageous because as you say, you can put the power down a bit more easily coming out of the corner. Um, yeah. Whereas if you were doing a time trial, or a, a triathlon where it was less technical, pedaling a bigger uh, pedaling a bigger gear with a slower cadence wouldn't be disadvant 
it wouldn't be no, really, and, and there is some actual um data to show that there's actually perhaps an, a small aerodynamic advantage because uh, when your feet are turning around at a lower rate your legs are turning around then in, in theory and, and, and we've looked at this in cycling that you perhaps have a little less turbulent air a little less drag compared to running a cadence over 120. Mm. Um, and I think when you get into the details of these things, it's probably because it doesn't have a, a really massive impact. It's just one of those small marginal gains that is worth knowing. But at the same time, you know, you probably know if you, if you go down that line of inquiry, you probably know to find that there's a right answer. It's just a, a bit of common sense, I guess, at the end of the day. Yeah, and I guess it, a lot of it would depend on the the physiological and characteristics of each rider wouldn't it and the, and the muscle yes. fiber types of each rider whether you Absolutely. prefer to pedal at a, a faster cadence or a slower cadence so then it's 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 almost like find what works for you exactly and and, and from my work with tracks like this in the build-up to beijing with the british team you could see you know that when you did just a, a standing sprint the peak cadence of the track sprinters like chris hoy's jason queely's jason kenny's you know they're they're in excess of 150 RPM, whereas the, the endurance riders would, would just sort of spin out at 140 or less. Mm-hmm. And that's where, you know, that's really, as you described, highly linked to muscle fiber type and, and dis- dis- distribution. Whereas when you're riding at sub-maximal intensity, so like you would do in a, tr- in a triathlon or time trial, it's a little bit more adaptable. What about when you have to run off the bike then? Is there an advantage to pedaling with a lower cadence or a higher cadence, because there are some, I know there are some coaches, Brett Sutton particularly favours a slightly, uh, quite a quite a significantly lower cadence for his athletes. And he, one of his coaches um, is an ex-pro cyclist who really goes to town on this and has written a lot of blogs about, you know, super low cadence and the fact that it's much better for your legs to be, um, to be using that if you're going to run off it. Whereas others say, well, if you are pedaling a higher cadence, that's based mostly around your aerobic conditioning and there's less muscular fatigue. So that's better for running. Any thoughts? Yeah, ultimately, it's a kind of work, as you know all too well, but ultimately there's no one size fits all. I think that's probably the first point. And this, this is, you know, a generic point across all, all coaches and scientists working with athletes. Um, I think you could make an argument for trying to replicate the cadence of running with the cadence of cycling, because you could argue perhaps there's a you know disparity if you come off a, a cycling at a higher cadence and running at a lower cadence. But the counterpoint to that could be that you know the the kinetic chain of the muscle you're using do differ. You know your hips in a different position and and, and the activation cycle of your quadriceps, your hamstrings, your lower leg muscles, and your core is different. So. Mm-hmm. I think it's it's really you can adopt a certain strategy and it's what works best for the athlete. Um, but yeah, there's there's physiological reasons, there's biomechanical reasons, but but ultimately it's what really works for you as long as it's within a, a normal range. And you're obviously doing 40 RPM or 150 is, is is a little bit ridiculous. So back to my original question, and I'm not sure if I, maybe I missed it. Um, is it is it is it kinetic energy that makes the difference between the cardiovascular input of pedaling at 75 rpm versus pedaling at 95 rpm and that's the reason why your heart rate goes up or is it just your generic conditioning it's it's more the the excitability of the heart so kinetic energy would be the energy that you've got in the bike that you're you're um uh-huh. And then within a revolution, depending on whether you're on a flat or going uphill, let's say you're going uphill, then that kinetic energy drops because the bike decelerates because of gravity. It drops also when you're on a flat because of aerodynamic resistance, but it's, it's you know, the aerodynamic drag is a little less impactful as to going up a 10% climb. 
So if you are applying a small force more rapidly, then in theory, that those, those fluctuations are less. Um, whereas if you're pushing a big gear, there's going to be a dead spot when you're at the top, dead centre, bottom dead centre, where the bike starts. So that's the kinetic energy part. But the elevated heart rate you see is more linked to the, the rate of contraction, the excitability it puts on the, your cardiovascular system. And, and, and it just that's a response. But like I say, with training, you can reduce that. So you don't have as high a heart rate for a given high cadence. Yeah, because you see Chris Froome peddling those ridiculous uh, cadences, don't you? Even when climbing, you know, I don't, don't quite know how he manages to keep it going and put out over 400 watts when he's doing outdoors, but he seems to manage it okay. Um, and I guess Absolutely, it's just, yeah. just conditioning, yeah? Yeah, and, 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 and Primus Roglic does it as well now, the Slovenian rider who won the Welter last year. So it's, um, but you still see disparity. You do see some guys that are a little bit lower cadence, but like I say, as long as you're within a certain window, it's, 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 it's probably not making a big difference. So let's move on then. You're in Switzerland now. After you'd done your stint at British Cycling and uh, British Triathlon, you you moved over to Switzerland. I think you said you went to work for Nestle and in particular Powerbar. So what what was it you were doing at Powerbar? Yeah, I moved over in 2012. So I sort of worked a bit with triathlon in the build-up to the London Games and then just wanted a... You know, a bit of a new challenge. I'd done three Olympic cycles and I had a I had a former um, research colleague, Canadian guy who now works with the Canadian Institute of Sport. And he was working for Nestle, as you say, at their research center here in, in Switzerland, in Lausanne. And um, he was leaving and he said, oh, you might be interested in this role. It's predominantly with their sports nutrition brands, which was Power Bar and an Australian brand called Musashi. And um, yeah, I moved in and, and, and worked in sort of a corporate role in R&D my original PhD had been funded by Unilever, so I'd been on the other side of that, but that's really what the, the job entailed. It was to work with the businesses. So Nestle obviously has multiple brands that we all are familiar with, whether it's Nescafe or um, Bittel or all the chocolate brands that we all love. But Power Bar was a bit of a unique brand because it wasn't like their core consumer. It was supposed to represent you know, the pinnacle of health and performance. And uh, it was a originally American brand that they, that they bought from uh, the couple that invented it. Probably one of the first sort of global sports nutrition mm. products, energy providers. And I worked alongside their head of R and D, and 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 worked. You know, I was quite lucky compared to my colleagues at the research centre who were really just running laboratory studies that had generic application across Nestle's brand. I got that hands-on experience working with Power Bar athletes and supporting that business. So I was managing and conducting research with experts across the world and it, i was seeing it you know all the way through to its implementation so for example power bar has this mixture of different carbohydrates the concept they call it is c2 max which is the multiple transportable carbohydrates which enables you to take on more than 90 grams per hour i'm oh, sorry 60 but, but up to 90 to 100 and then uh, also they had a supplement called beta alanine and some of the research that trent stallingworth the guy i, I took on from he, he had started and I was able to implement. So it was it was really nice to, to do that on a day-to-day basis to oversee how conducting research was actually uh, had an application in business as opposed to in, in athlete performance, which I'd done prior to moving to Switzerland. So when companies like Powerbar are developing their products, how much of it is commercially driven? for sales and how much of it and how much of it's really about whether they're interested in the uh, benefits to an athlete or can uh, you say well no it's a, it's a really good question and i think it's um 
I think there's there's, there's certainly a, a degree of transparency with these brands. In the case of Power Bar, you would sort of argue that perhaps it's one of the few nutrition brands or sports nutrition in general where there is actually a genuine performance interest because they want to make claims to promote their products. To what extent they're interested in in driving the success of athletes is is always debatable. You know that you'll see them partner with multiple athletes, triathletes, cyclists, endurance athletes that are competing against each other. So they're clearly not all their eggs in one basket in support of one athlete, like you might be as a coach or a scientist working in the team. But yeah, they want to be associated with success and they want to understand how, how performance can be improved. So at Power Bar, they were yeah ultimately trying to sell products to consumers, but they understood that their core consumer was an educated, you know, recreational sub-elite athletes who wanted to use the products to improve performance. Um, which is perhaps a little bit not the case with things like Nesquik and Nescafe and things, which is more a, a luxury item. I remember uh, a friend of mine actually was importing power bars before it was taken over by Nestle. And as soon as yeah. that whole thing, yeah, um, I don't know if you know Dave Lockeran, who uh, is now the, was the founder of Planet X. So he brought them oh, in yes, and I used, yeah. I used to buy them off him and, uh, um, and just sell them on. And... Uh, they weren't really very well known here and if you picked up american version of triathlete magazine of course power bar was all over the place but they hadn't really got a foothold in the uk um that whole carpet was pulled from underneath him when i think they were sold to nestle because they were suddenly looking for big distribution through tesco and and what have you they didn't they basically shut dave out but i used to use power bar i think you know i'm way ahead of the game here nobody else is using it i think the only product the only specific sports product available then was maxim Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. which was just unflavored um, carbohydrate mix, and uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and then the guys from Maxim went to High Five, and then High Five set up. But the one thing I recall from those early power bars, and I and, uh, I stopped using them a, a bit after that, was that if you if you rode with them in your back pocket on a cold day, like you might experience <laughs> in Switzerland, yeah, yeah, they were yeah. they were absolutely rock hard. And you were more likely to lose teeth than you were to get any nutrition in. And I'm thinking they must get feedback from people on this. You know, in America, if you're riding in Colorado in the middle of winter, a nice sort of blue sky but cold day, surely people are giving you feedback and they and they were they would do something within the R and D to make them a little softer. Did was that anything you ever had any input on? Uh, you, you remind me of a funny story that I then heard when I went and worked in professional cycling. I worked with BMC and and, a, and the guy who headed up the performance group or sort of the sports manager was a guy called Alan Piper, an Australian. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Moved to Europe, one of the first to move to Europe and race. And I heard a story from one of his competitors at the time said they were they were in a race in Belgium and, and Alan was in the process of eating a power bar. It was a cold day, like you described. And then someone attacked and he, and he was in the middle of biting his power bar. And then he had to respond to that attack, took the power bar out, his false teeth were stuck in the power bar and he threw the power bar in the field. <laughs> well, I don't think he got his teeth back to this day, but yeah, it's uh, it's it's really interesting because yeah, that's, it, it's certainly yeah, a common and well-known issue. And, and, and there's this, it's really nice to be on the other side to understand how you address all these problems. Cause there's a science of the product, the ingredients and how that might improve performance. Then there's also the, the the customer feedback and the perception and taste and, and quality and texture. And there's a whole departments and, and research into that in Nestle for all their products. Cause at the end of the day, you know, it, sports nutrition arguably has a larger functional focus, but the majority of nutrition we have is, a, is pleasure. It's like, it needs to taste good, feel good, make you feel nice. And uh, yeah, they, they went to great extents to improve that. But you, you spoke about earlier then about, you know, how Power Bar, after you became aware of it, then got 
got taken over by Nestle and then arrived in supermarkets. And one interesting thing with sports nutrition brands is that where where a business like Nestle or in the case of Gatorade, PepsiCo and Gatorade, they want to get it into mass, they call it, so into supermarkets because that's where the demands for it go and then they mm. can produce big quantities. In sports nutrition, you lose your core consumer. So as soon as it's available in a gas station or a branch of Tesco's, then your athletes that use it, whether they're elite or sub-elite or weekend warriors, they, they think it loses a bit of credibility. Mm. And that often these brands almost suffer from becoming mass production and, yeah. and certainly they become global brands because they also can't keep up with the smaller brands that can adapt and respond to current research. It's like beetroot juice or beta alanine or, you know, all of these different things. So it's a, a little bit of a, a juxtaposition because, you know, it gets big, brand becomes profitable, you sell it, you invented it like the Maxwell's did, but, but, but Nestle ultimately sold that brand because it didn't grow anymore because they, they got to a point where it wasn't as attractive to the core consumer. Mm. I'll tell you my funny story with Power Bar, and it was pre-Nestle. Um, I was doing a race, uh, I think it was the half Ironman event at uh, Ironbridge, and I'd seen this photograph of this spike with chunks of power bar. So you take them out of the wrapper and you cut the power bar into four or five, and then you fold them over the top tube. So I've got five pieces neatly arranged, stuck to the top tube, ready, you know, no, no wrapper to unpeel, nothing, just to peel it off the top tube. And I got this beautiful, I can't remember whether it was a Basso or a Klein, but it had a lovely paint job on it. All right. So I'm about to, I think I, and I think I had two power bars. I had 10 pieces from the, from the stem right down to the seat post, just right on that. I felt really cool and clever that I'd done this. I set off about 10 or 15 miles into the ride. I started to get my first piece. And as I peeled it off, away came the paint. So it's right down to the bare metal. So clearly I couldn't eat that. So I chucked it into the edge and proceeded to get the next piece off and away came more paint. And I, I couldn't eat that. Anyway, this carried on until I got all 10 pieces off. I couldn't eat any of them. And I now got a top tube that was completely naked of paint. So not only did I bonk on the ride, but I, also had to have a complete respray, which cost about exactly. 400 quid at the time. It was an absolute disaster. I, I never did that. I never did that again, but to start with, it looked really cool. It's a, it's a great story because it speaks to what interests me in, in my career. And that's like the implementation, right? So uh, I was lucky enough to do a, to a research degree, a PhD at Loughborough, which was a fairly, you know, well-established sports science university and, 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 and when you do research, it's all about publication, and, and that has its place, absolutely. But I was never so motivated by that. For me, it was like, well, let's see if this stuff works in the real world. And, and it's, it's stories like that that tell you that, you know, all of these scientists that are obsessed with the biochemistry and then, mm. you know, which is super interesting, but that's all very well and good. You still have to be able to use it in practice. And often you'll, you'll hear about, you know, new innovations and new developments. And then you speak to people that are working with athletes in the field and, and, and it's like, yeah, that's great, but we can't actually use it either because it takes paint off your bike frame or or worse. So yeah, it's 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 a good story because it does relate to what what I've faced with for the last uh, yeah, 20 years plus and the challenges of actually implementing science. But before we move on from sports nutrition, let me ask you this question then, because you're talking about the beta alanine and the C2 Max that Power Bar have. Everybody... Yeah. Everybody seems to have their own little thing that gives them this unique edge, at least as far as the marketing would tell us. At the end of the day, and going back to training um, approaches and cadence and finding what works for you, 
they're really trying to deliver the same things, aren't they? They're trying to deliver carbohydrate into the muscles with as little disturbance to the stomach, you know, through digestion and effectively as possible. So people can continue um, to, to perform at the same level. So is there really a great deal of difference between these products? Is there any, is there anything that's got unique properties that makes it substantially better? Or is it really just a case of finding what works for you because of the taste or the, the texture or yeah, in else. general, I mean, that's, that's the great thing about competition. When, when one brand doesn't have a monopoly, then others, you know, they're, they're always trying to, to come up with their, um, their, their, their innovative or, or their unique um, marketing value, which is linked to, in, in the case of sports nutrition, some performance enhancing effect. Um, so in, in that respect, then most brands normally, if you go for the cheaper products that are perhaps un, unbranded or or uh, like supermarket brands, then yeah, maybe the, they haven't embraced that science because they haven't got the, the manufacturing capacity for it. Um, but, but most brands will have some concept around, so an example of carbohydrate intake, it will be multiple transportable carbohydrates, which is based on the, on the gut absorption issue, which is that you can only absorb a gram of of glucose per, per minute, so 60 per hour. And then by adding fructose to that, you can start to utilize that transporter, but that's still an evolving science. So it isn't just a case of doing both and you use both transporters to get the get the carbohydrate from your, your stomach or your, your small intestine into your body. It's actually one kicks in after the other. So understanding how best to formulate that ratio is important. Um, you take, for example, Morton. You know, oh, I was going is... to ask you about Morton, yeah. So this is a, something that, 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 that that's perhaps a case of a, a fairly innovative and novel food technology that's been applied to sport now. And that's one, one brand that is quite different to other brands. So other brands will have some mixture of, of uh, carbohydrate types to, to address absorption rates and ultimately GI issues, so like stomach issues. But Morton uses a food technology where on contact with stomach acid, the, the carbohydrate turns into a gel, a hydrogel. And the, the theory behind that is that there's a, there's a process where gastric emptying, so how quickly fluid leaves your stomach into your small intestine where it's absorbed, mm. is controlled. So if you take a normal sports drink, when it gets to a certain amount, you, your stomach stops emptying itself so that your body can deal with the increase in blood glucose and insulin. Now, of course, there's a negative to that. Is if you're trying to get in a lot, and it, it means some of it stays in your stomach, and that's what you feel when you're trying to run and cycle and, and move around. So this is actually quite a smart food technology which negates that. So that hydrogel isn't isn't sensed in the same well way. So gastric emptying isn't impaired, and then it, when that that hydrogel goes into your small intestine, it's then dissolved in a less acidic environment and then absorbed. Um, so that the food technology is it makes sense. It comes from pig farming, I believe in a way to get animals to eat more and, and obviously make them fatter and more profitable. But there is, there's still a little bit of debate as to whether it's, you know, as, as performance impactful as it, as it claims. Mm. And that's often the case, right? I've talked about quite a, a specific um, mechanism there in digestion, but then it's only part of the puzzle when it comes to performance. So there's been some research to show that it does have some benefits and people suffer from a little less GI distress but it's not like everyone who uses Morton is is, is seeing a, a step change in performance. I, I always have this issue when um, you see research on nutrition being pointed at performance in Ironman because most of the stuff I've seen is like, okay, on a six-hour ride or a ride to exhaustion. But when you've got when you're doing a big race. Um, firstly, you've got the stress anyway, the mental stress. So your stomach's already in turmoil before you've e even eaten yeah. anything, 
right? So it's very rare that you're going to get that in the research. Not many of the research papers I've seen have had somebody swim at a moderate level for an hour beforehand and swallow water or maybe seawater, which is going to affect contents of your stomach. Um, and most athletes that I've worked with over the years that have stomach issues um, have these starting about an hour or two into the run, but there's not really any research that shows what happens when things go a bit dark for people and mm-hmm. everything really starts. It's all about sitting on the bike. And of course, as you know, you can eat, uh, you can eat um, with a little less distress on the bike, a lot easier than you can on the run. So I'd like to see some research that have people working for eight hours with swim, bike and run and creating the stress as well, because that's the only true way you can tell whether this really does work in, um, in an event like Ironman. At least that's my yeah. that's my hypothesis. No, no, you're, you're talking about ecological validity, right? The, the, the fact that a lot of scientific research is done in a small group of people, normally university students that are reasonably well trained, mm. and and then it's made there's this big inference to the wider population, and that's that's based on hypothesis testing. It's right, you have an idea, but if you're working in human physiology, um, then you're always going to be limited to how many people you can test, and if you're doing invasive you know, studies where you're taking muscle biopsies or blood and then looking at performance. It's, 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 mm. it's a limitation. I think we're moving towards, and there already exists this kind of big data um, culture where there was a nice study done using Strava data by journalists at the New York Times looking at the Nike, is it Superfly, the, the, the yeah. shoe with the carbon plate in it. And they were able to use mass data from American runners that did um, marathons across the country and on Strava, you can say whether you, what type of shoe you can add, what type of equipment you're using. So they were able to pair that up with the racing, and they could see whether the same athlete who did the Boston Marathon one year and the next, whether the shoe improved performance, and also compared between people. And yeah, there are factors that that will be, you know, covariance they call it. So factors that can impact those those performance effects like weather and, and, and the fitness of the athlete. But the advantage of taking such a massive data set, and we're talking about thousands of runners is that the, although the noise of the data gets bigger, the signal gets stronger. And they actually found data to substantiate Nike's claims about a 4% improvement performance. Mm-hmm. And I think when it speaks to your, your point about the validity of research and applying it to athletes competing Ironman, I think we're going to get to a point now where you can maybe retrospectively draw that data online. I mean, none of us read the terms and conditions when we click OK, <laughs> in which it says, are you, are you willing to share your data? And that's where these, you know, these growing, if you like, cloud data storages through social sports apps and, and platforms will enable nutrition companies, equipment companies to do complementary research, which might not be as mechanistic, but it might be proof of concept, if you like. It's like, well, you know, we, we now know from mass data that we've got that most people don't take more than 60 grams per hour of carbohydrate anyway. Mm. So it's it's the way it's going to, to try and answer the questions that you know you deal with as a coach and, and working with athletes. So, so in the pure lab research, you obviously have controls, um, which yes. obviously you can't get when you're doing that big data stuff, but big data is done in the real world, which is more realistic, like you say, and, and maybe more applicable to the weekend warriors out there that are, um, exactly. that are competing. It's a, it's a continuum at the end of the day. If you want tight control stuff and you want to really understand what's going on, like your question about cadence earlier, then yeah, there's, there's, a, there's no replacement for the laboratory. But if you want to know whether that's translatable to the real world, then you, you need to be in the field and, and, and collecting data that way. In one of our previous conversations off, off air, we talked about wearables and the growth in um, constant glucose monitors, sleep trackers, mm-hmm. um, 
can't think there's some there's quite a few innovative things coming on with foot pods now that measure uh, foot plants and um, cadence and all of that and um, while you're walking and running and then linking that to sort of injury profiles um, have you got involved much with with wearables and do you see these contributing to this big data type of research then and being more valid for um, general athletic performance? Sure, yeah. Uh, I've had a lot of involvement with it uh, working in a sport like cycling. Um, you know, it's perhaps one of the sports, uh, perhaps after motorsport, where this sort of wearable technology has been pioneered. So, you know, power meters on bikes, hieromometers have been around for 20 years plus. And then, as you say, there's more and more wearable technology that's evolving, um, mainly with a sort of commercial angle. You know, it's, it's a way to, to drive some sort of um, return on, on people doing sport. You know, it's, it's people, at the end of the day, you don't need a wearable to go out for a run or go for a swim or a ride. You just need the fundamentals. But, but we all are humans. We all like to have some novelty and, and some some additional motivational factors and these things provide that for those of us that are a little bit more analytically thinking or, or a bit more tech driven but yeah i've worked with it's certainly in the last maybe five to ten years certainly the last five years these things seem to be exploding and and, and whether that's just a innovation in technology or whether that's just a technology space that's taken a little bit more focus on the the, the athlete consumer because they recognize it's a profitable market um, but yeah, I've worked with um, recovery devices or, or, or monitors that, that are accelerometry based and some sensors that measure body temperature and heart rate like WHOOP and Aura. There's you know core body temperature sensor that measures heat energy transfer to, to make an inference to core body temperature. There's, yeah, like you say, there's, there's various kinematic devices that measure position on the bike or running, running foot impact. Um, and, the, and the technology's got to a point where it's not this big box with wires coming out. It's now you know, embedded in a, in a ring or a watch or a, or a pod that goes on your body somewhere. So it's still, in my opinion, it's still in its infancy in terms of validity. Because, but the, but, but the people that are driving, you know, the, the product development and application aren't necessarily interested in validity to a point because ultimately they're trying to sell a product, right? And mm-hmm. they can go through due diligence of getting everything tested like sports scientists would like them to do so that there's confidence in the accuracy of the measure. However, that's not really their end game. Their end game is to get to... So it's the same question that you asked about nutrition. It's like, are they really interested in improving performance? Well, it's nice if it does, but really they want to sell the product. And I think what they'll start to do is embrace this big data question and then retrospectively analyze the validity of their tool so that they can then tighten up their algorithms and, and make it a bit more applicable. Yeah, I've been wearing a whoop for about four years now, four and a half years. Yeah. So I'm an, I'm an early adopter. It was even before they started on the subscription model. But you can see where they're going to, and they've got an awful lot of investment. The, the company's valued at um two or three billion now which is amazing for i think that's what they call a unicorn in the uh, in the private investment world something that's yeah, sort of gone from yeah. standing start to huge dollars and of course the people who are investing in things like that the, the, the smart people who put money into startups um are used to getting a big return so they'll be they'll be um advising the board there about ways in which they can monetize that and these the subscription role um model is is perfect because you get people tied in and then you you keep sort of you keep them tied in by telling them that they need this product. Mm-hmm. Um, I've I've had debates. I've tried to have debates with Whoop about the validity of some of the data because as they've introduced each successive model, things seem to seem to tighten up a bit, which causes me to think about well, when I've got an HRV of this particular score, 
from 2018 and now it's this particular score but nothing's changed much in my life how valid were those original scores and then all the data and the benchmarks that everything's based upon the record the ai recommendations gives me how how valid are those if some of it's based on information that was wrong from three years ago um and i and i know other people have those questions however as a coach what i do appreciate from all of these devices is that it creates a bit of mindfulness in the wearer and then behavioral changes which come from it so you can you can definitely see for instance if you have alcohol just before you go to bed how that has an impact on your sleep compared to times when you don't have alcohol or when you have the alcohol you know a glass of wine early in the evening you can see the effect of getting off a long haul flight and going through several time zone changes and how that suppresses your um, hrv and then what that might be telling you about well whether it's whether a two-hour run is going to have any benefit if you're going out there, maybe you're better off just going for a walk on on the grass in bare feet. Um, and so that I, I I do like the behavioural changes, and mm-hmm. I, I think from, from certainly from a, a you know a high performance human perspective, those behavioural changes which lead to better health overall uh, are, are very valid. Sure, absolutely. They're, they're, they're tools at the end of the day, and, and thinking back to something like a power meter that's been around on the bikes for years. Mm. You always used to have this pattern where there was cycling being quite a traditional sport. There was resistance to this technology, and, and, and then eventually it was embraced. And then it become became you know the most important thing in the world, and to, to which cyclists would spend most of the time looking down at their bike computer instead of ahead. <laughs> yeah. I know a cyclist that two days into a training camp in Mallorca called quits, went home because his power meter broke. So there was this dependency, and then. Then they're sort of like, you know, then they realize that it isn't the be all and end all, and then they go away. And then when and when they come back to it, that's the golden moment where they then they recognize it. It's a tool, it's a it's a an objective measure, it's a second opinion, it's something that that helps you to understand well, you know, things that you typically intuitively deduct, right? So more subjective things. So that's where these things have their place. It's they're, they're not spent to drive training, they're not meant to drive mm. your strategies, they're meant to give you a second opinion and help you understand your body and how it responds to exercise and sleep and how you travel um, and then sort of balance up against what you know already about yourself because at the end of the day no one's nothing's going to tell you more about yourself than you so it's it's supposed to complement that but it takes a while for people to get there yeah and it it seems to me um from people i know both at the top end of the sport and uh, in the sort of recreational athletes that the best athletes are the ones that have this intuitive feel for how they're performing they can they can understand their rpe very very accurately and you know i mean you've you've been there with cyclists i've seen it with triathletes the good the good triathletes and the good swimmers if you say to them right i want you to i want you to swim four different paces here without looking at the clock just swim it they can swim that if you ask an athlete to um to run around the track at a certain pace, they can get there within one second without having a look at the watch because they understand how that pace feels and, and what the effort level feels like. And um, to me, that's the most valuable, one of the most valuable skills you can have as an athlete is in this um, very strong connection with with effort and feel. Yeah, perception of effort is normally pretty um, high, like you say, with elite performance. And whether that's through just uh, you know a certain degree of obsessiveness around understanding their their body's reaction or whether that's you know driven by Tim Noakes' model around central governor and, and perception of effort and, and pacing. I don't know, but but there there's certainly I agree with you. It's a trait that you see a lot with the best that they are attuned to their bodies. So let, let's talk about professional cycling, David. You you talked about um you you briefly mentioned BMC. Um 
once your time at Nestle had ended, I, I know that you moved into professional cycling. How did that occur? Was that through connections you made through Power by Work or uh, personal connections you had? No, it was, it was actually an ongoing um, relationship I had with cyclists born out of my time with British cycling pre uh, and into Beijing 2008. So I was pretty lucky to, to get a bit of an insight into what now is British cycling, highly successful Olympic programme and Team Sky, now Team Ineos you know, a highly successful professional road cycling team. And, and I was fortunate enough through my time at the EIS to then go and work with the cyclists in the boat to Beijing and, and, and be part of that process, which for me was 50% learning as much as 50% impact. Um, and, and I kept in contact with, with various other scientists, doctors and riders. And, and I'd done a bit of private coaching during my time at Nestle because my passion was cycling and, and I enjoyed the sport. Uh, and, and then Nestle sold their sports nutrition business because they can and they have so many products and brands and I still have the possibility to continue working there but my theme has always been sport and and through those contacts yes two two or three of them were working for BMC racing team either riders or or, um, or, or staff and that was a way in and at that time the, the whole institute model of scientists and medics uh, supporting athletes wasn't quite as established in professional sport certainly in cycling which is a bit more traditional um, and the way to get in was as a coach. So cycling historically has got a lot of research and a lot of scientific basis to it, the training of it. Um, so, yeah, that was a, an opportunity for me to go and work with that team. And I was with that team for five years through to when the sponsorship ended with BMC. So did, did you work with the whole team then um, overseeing the programme or do riders typically tend to have individual coaches? So the, the model at the time, and it's, it's more established now, was that most teams had coaches, internal coaches, and, and the UCI, the governing body for cycling, um, now imposed certain regulations around that, mainly driven around trying to manage the, the doping culture that's plagued the sport in the past. And now teams are encouraged to employ coaches internally, and they are allowed, I think, to coach up to a maximum of 10 riders. So when I first started at BMC, I had, I think, it varied between seven and 10 riders year by year. There was some turnover with riders moving on. And my role initially went started as coach to being performance manager. So I was part of a team of, of staff that were had a performance focus. And that sounds probably a little bit bizarre in a team where everyone should be performance focused, but more traditional roles in cycling is mechanic and swanio, which is sort of a carer who does all the treatment and supports the athletes at races. Sports directors is a bit like your football manager, you know, in the field. And, and the performance team was your, your, your medical team, nutritionists, coaches, sports scientists, psychologists, you know, aerodynamicists and, and biomechanists and things. And, and BMC embraced that a little bit like INEOS or formerly Team Sky have, and, and most teams do now. Um, so, yeah, I coached some fairly successful riders, but was also you know, heavily involved in some of the science projects behind the scenes. Can you can you say which riders you work with? I mean, anybody yeah, that's listening yeah, yeah. could probably so, go and go and look at the BMC team roster for those years you mentioned. Yeah, no, I was I was lucky enough to to coach people like Richie Port, uh, TJ Van Garderen, Rowan Dennis, Greg Van Avermaet. Um, I mean, it was a a bit of a fantastic team in in that it had a real kind of some high profile riders and some young riders that went on to be quite successful. Uh, when I arrived, there were people like Cadell Evans there. There was Philip Gilbert. Um, and then during my time, and, and it's often the case, as you can probably attest to, that the most rewarding relationship is when you're working with the young athletes that come up. And a lot of those have gone on to be very successful. So I was, was and until this year, coach for Dylan Toons, Belgian rider who's won some big races. And then Swiss riders like Sylvain Dillier and Stefan Kuhn, 
Stefan is one of the top time trialists in the world now. So yeah, BMC had quite an established development team, which which is, was also a great opportunity to work with young and upper coming athletes. So for me, looking back, it was a bit of a golden era for me because it was a team with really good budget, you know, perhaps second only to Sky. And as a result, quite a great talent base and, and a great experience to learn in that sport. So you you mentioned, let's, let's take the four riders that you mentioned there that most people know, Port, Van Garderen, uh, Van Avermaet and Rowan Dennis, all different yep. characteristics. Van Avermaet, yes. you know, known for his uh, one day um, performances in the classics, obviously winning, winning the Olympics. Um, Port, more of a grand tour rider. Rowan Dennis, uh, a time trialist. And uh, um, who was the other one you mentioned? TJ Van Garden was also, yep. he was also uh, sort of penciled in as a future GC um, Correct, and, yes. and yeah. contender and yeah. tour winner, wasn't he? So, um, and obviously different ages and experience. So, but 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 again, it's often in the same team. So, and and having different roles within that team. So, that must be like that, that. must be really hard as a coach to try and get them all to perform at the same level. So, if they're in the Tour de France or the Giro, and yet get them same level of fitness to be able to finish a three-week tour, and yet they've got different characteristics. So, you're constantly having to change the different program. So, how how does it all work when you're coaching a pro tour rider? Also when you throw in the fact that they're pretty, racing pretty much every week. So where's the opportunity to actually do any training? Yeah, your last point. <laughs> That's a big question. Probably, the last point is that is the most rele- relevant to that, that question in that cycling is 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 really stri- differs itself from other sports where there are so many competition days. Now, I know in some team sports, there's repeated competitions, but if we look at endurance sports, you don't, you know, an average cyclist will do between 60 and 80 race days a year, they call it. And that's, there is actually a limit of 80. I think world tour races, there's, if you add up all the world tours, so the, the top level races, including the grand tours and the classics, it comes to about 130 race days a year. So they obviously can't do all the races, but then there's an excess of 1500 races that the that, that teams can do because there's lower, lower, lower ranked races. So typically a, a season is an off season that starts right about now in December, uh, where they get together and do winter training camps in, in, in warm locations in Europe. And then racing normally under normal non-pandemic situation starts in Australia um, and the European season starts in, in, in March. So Australia in January and March in Europe, March, February, and runs through to the end of October, even early November. And that's a really long, intensive race block and and, and it presents some challenges. And, and historically, um, where coaching was perhaps less a focus and, and training was less a focus, cyclists race to get race fit. Um, and, and there's no debate that specificity of training in racing makes sense. And it's still perhaps the case these days with things like the classics. So a rider like Greg Van Avermaet, it makes sense for him to do a lot of one-day races on cobbles, in windy and wet conditions, because you really can't replicate that in training. But but the evolution, and maybe even from the era of, of Lance Armstrong, who obviously brought the sport into disrepute for, for well-known reasons, but actually pioneered, pioneered a lot of other things about having dedicated years of training, going to altitude in the early spring, trying to replicate the demands of a grand tour and actually trying to peak to perform. Because if you've got that many competition days, if you hold a good form through the year, the chances are that you'll win a race or you have a good result because you know you might just get the timing as such. So for me, that's a little bit something to, to, to always consider when you watch cycling is that, if you see, you know, a guy win a race and you think, well, I've never heard of that race before, or it's a, it's, a, it's a minor race, but that guy must be good. 
Well, it might be that, you know, he's not peaked on the, the day that everyone else has when they're trying to win the Tour de France or one of one of the big classics. Right. So that's 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 one of the big challenges in the sport to trying to to trying to balance that sort of race every weekend, you know, or, or multiple stage races against saying, well, where do we want to be good? Where do we want to 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 get the best performances? And, and inevitably, you know, that's the Grand Tours and the more well-known races. What about people like Van Aert and Van der Poel who are fully engaged in a, you know, a competitive cross-country, uh, cyclocross season? So that, that generally runs from, what, September to December? Hey, the cross season is, is officially starts in September and ends in January. And but but the European races, the more popular ones in in, in Belgium, the Netherlands, and, and across Europe, they sort of October through. And and actually, it's not that many races. There's the World Cups and then the Super Prestige races, and they're only an hour long. So, in terms of race load, it's far less than a than a World Tour season. However, then of course it skews your training. And now you, now you may be speaking to another point. It's like, you know, the traditional model of a pyramid-type periodization where you build low intensity and less top end versus a polarized model, which you could argue that cyclocross necessitates because it's so hard for an hour that you've got this sort of distribution of top end training versus base training. And they certainly set the question, the philosophy, training philosophy in professional cycling because they've obviously gone on to do great things on road bikes in road races. What you should remember is these guys are supremely talented. And if you've watched, followed Cyclocross this year, both of them hadn't raced, and I don't think Matthew Van Der Poel has raced yet, but certainly Van Aert has only just returned to it. And he returned, and his first race he won by more than a minute. So that speaks in, in itself that you've got a, you know, a cohort of Cyclocross riders that have been racing without him, and he comes along and just makes them look silly. And mm. um, so as much as that is really questioned and rightly so, the philosophy around training in the off-season, they're also two outliers in that they probably can put their hand to anything. And I, th- I think, well, Matthew van der Poel tried to do that at the Olympics with the mountain biking. Um, Tom Pidcock was the one that took that off him. And he's another example of a talented bike rider that can sort of put his hand to all events. And I think Matthew van der Poel is going to have a go at gravel racing now. You know, So I think sometimes it's great when these guys pioneer a different approach and they challenge the norm. But you also have to remember that they're, you know, perhaps responders and, and, and they'll, they'll respond to whatever they do. So is it is it possible to have a, a traditional um, periodized training program for professional cycling? Or is it is it very uh, much a hybrid based around each individual's racing choices, their racing specialities? And um, and what they're trying, what the team's trying to win. So if the team, you know, like Ineos, are always big about G- uh, Grand Tours, aren't they? Not, some, you know, I know they put in for the classics, but it's not. It doesn't ever seem to be such a priority for them. Yeah, it's it's. I think that there's sort of two questions in one. And to answer your last one, I think the classics are they don't really suit that um, marginal gains performance culture. Control everything because the classics are a race of attrition, right? You you basically got to get to the last hour of the race. And we're talking about five, six hours and, and, and a bunch of obstacles thrown you away in weather and roads and crashes and everything. So you can go in as, you know, performance at the end of the day is probability, right? There's, there's a certain degree of probability that you'll perform or not perform or win or not win. And that is, there's a lot, a lot more variables that you can't control in a classics race compared to a Grand Tour, which sounds nuts when you think that a Grand Tour is three weeks and a classic race is just one day. But you can look at Grand Tours and say, well, actually, of the 21 stages, maybe these three or four can influence the outcome. Or if there's a week race, maybe there's just one day, there's a time trial, there's a summit finish. 
And that, that lends itself more to that sort of structured planning and execution and controlling the controllables. Whereas in a classic race, then anything can happen. But speaking to your first part about traditional periodization, um, yeah, it's tough when you when you're a rider that's expected to race, you know, throughout the season. I think it does exist. I think that there is place for it for the, the leaders that do have dedicated periods of training and rest and recovery throughout the season. Traditional model of cycling has been very polarized because, yeah, you're racing hard during the season. And the rest of the time, you probably want to recover and recuperate before you do your next race. But I think there's that nowadays it's it's more understanding that if you actually sit and prepare properly, then it does return its rewards by you being able to peak for the key races. Mm. So my next question is then, let's look at Pogacar, um, Bernal. They're the youngest Grand Tour riders, winners, you know, really. And, and it's both come in the last couple of years. Traditionally, these guys would be in their late 20s, early 30s. So what is it that has enabled these chaps to perform so well at such a young age, which goes completely against history, really? Is it is it because the, the academies are starting younger or are they that much more talented or is it something else? Which is what most people on social media want to know, really. Yeah, and, 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 and the, the kind of textbook answer is it depends. But uh, look, I think one of the things about performance that you realise when you work in it and, and you're too aware of is that it's multifactorial. Um, but yet it's human nature to simplify it as one thing. So that's why cyclists are always labelled with doping because that's the history of the sport. And that's an easy answer when you either get... And I'm not saying that it's just the, people, the, the spectators. Often the athletes will say, yeah, I lost that race because he's doping. Well, it's not that simple, right? You know, there's a bunch of factors that, that, that result in that performance. And it might be what happens on the day. It might be what happened to you since you started the sport as a kid and, and the opportunities you were given and how that was timed in relation to your maturation as an athlete. And yeah, there's a whole bunch of questions. And, and what you want to see when you turn on the Tour de France or any, you know, the Olympics or any major sport event is the pinnacle of that pyramid, you know, that building up. In the case of young athletes and talent, it's not confined to cycling. It's existed in other sports. I remember when marathon runners, you know, would, which were typically at their peak in their late 30s. And, you know, we've seen that age just drift further and further. Why? Mm, I, I, would, I could hazard a guess. I don't think it's any one factor. I think that most professional athletes um, of, of recent generations didn't set out to be professional athletes. It wasn't deemed a viable career path, whereas arguably it is these days, not across all sports, but certainly across more and more sports. That's Well, actually, so it means that they're able to dedicate that, that, that time to develop. I think sometimes we look at age as a chronological factor, and it's actually a biological one, right? So certain people mature. If you've worked with junior athletes and, and, and under-23s, you'll see that. I'm sure you've seen many examples in triathlon where people are super successful because they've matured quicker than their peers. And then, you know, there's a big argument around whether you should do age groups versus maturation rate of young athletes. But in the case of those guys you mentioned, I think that they are extremely talented. I think that, that there's perhaps more access to the sport in the countries they're from. Um, Slovenia is, you know, clearly a country that's been highly successful um, anyway, and then Belgium and, and, and other countries. But I think that in, in reality, it's a, a combination of opportunity at an earlier age is more is, is has grown, viability of it becoming a career path. And, and on top of that, a scientific understanding of, of how to, to do that and not to be tarnished by you know, old thinking of like, you know, you can't push an athlete too far when they're at a certain age. 
you know, there's medical and scientific support teams around it to to track what's happening to to say, hey, hold on, we need to slow this guy down. It's not like there's this sort of fear of of breaking an athlete in early age. Um, so I think there's there's more confidence in sort of saying, well, can they reach their potential? And then it only takes a few individuals like the guys that we've talked about to rock the boat. And then, you know, because often the, the resistance to these guys getting that opportunity is the old school athletes are like, no, no, you have to do your apprenticeship before you get that opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. Well, now these athletes come in and say, no, we don't, we don't, we don't want to conform to normality. We're going to have a go and we're going to show you how it's done. And that's what we see. I mean, in, in the example of Pogacar winning the tour, at certain points, he was just so much better than other people that that I think that's what raised some question marks. And then yeah. you you hit. I mean, but then uh, on the other hand, I listened to his coach Inigo Samilan talking about. I mean, this guy's supremely credible with his public health work in Colorado, and you just think if this guy's associated with something that's underhand, that doesn't just wreck his reputation as a cycle coach. That wrecks everything that that university is associated with. So why would you? And you know why why can't people just see? The other side of it, like talent versus hard work from a young age versus opportunity versus, um, you know, just just going for it and having a sort of like a shit or bust type of approach. Hmm. Hmm. It's cycling. You know, it's 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 got this past, which unfortunately was marred by doping and and and. But I mean, this is a big topic, and we probably don't have all, enough time to discuss it in detail. But but I don't think people really try to understand that fully, and I'm not. I don't condone it. At the end of the day, what is doping? Well, doping, doping is cheat, cheating, right? So what's cheating? It's gaining an unfair advantage. Well, does that mean you assume that it's a level playing field for everyone? Imagine if you were a professional, a talented cyclist 50 years ago in, in the UK versus now. Think you had to get the opportunity to race and perform it to the level that the guys can now because of investment from the government in, in Olympic sport, which spawned into Team Sky and Team Ineos. And, and so I think that understanding what cheating is is, is, is is a big philosophical debate that we don't have time for. But when it comes to doping, um, when there's incentive to win and the rewards that come with that, people will bend the rules. And that's not just confined to sport. That exists in business and all walks of life. You know, it's a, it's a psychological position and, and I'm not an expert to give you a detailed um, understanding as to, to, to why people do that, but it's it's human nature. So when you see an, an athlete like that perform that well, did they dope? Did they not dope? You don't know. You know, the argument is that everyone's trying to do the same thing in elite performance. They're trying to push the limits of human physical performance. And when it comes to gaining an unfair advantage and cheating, it's a grave area. There's no, as much as the organizing authorities, the anti-doping agencies and things want you to believe, it's not black and white. If you take WADA's list of banned substances, what percentage of them do you think are because they've gone away and done their due diligence and says, yeah, this chemical compound, this method helps improve performance versus what percentage are a product of them saying, oh, okay, that's what was used in the sport. That's what's being used. They're reacting to what's happening because again, there's more money to win than there is to catch people cheating. So taken together, it's only natural to, 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 to have suspicion in a sport like cycling, but try and understand where they're coming from. So I'm not defending Podjakar, but at the same time, I'm not saying that this guy is clean as a whistle. I don't know. And I'm sure that his coach cannot say hand on heart because he doesn't live with the guy 24 seven. The, the, the problem with cycling is it's, it's, it's been endemic in the sport in the past. So it's, it's a natural conclusion when you see 
a disparity in performance level to say, well, something must be going on. There's a, a real dominance of Slovenian cyclists. There's only 11 million people in that country. What's happening? And 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 I think it's it's you know you hear the athletes say it. You judge me by my performance, but unfortunately, we've had athletes that say that in the past who've subsequently found out to be doping. So it's a complicated area. It is. It's a shame because I think it undermines a lot of people doing a lot of great work to yeah. understand performance and drive performance forwards. And I think we have to accept as a part and parcel of, of, of the world of professional and elite sport. Um, we do. We we rely on anti-doping agencies to try and manage, manage and monitor that. It's not a foolproof mechanism. We just have to carry on with our job and 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 try and adopt you know a quality assured best practice. To help athletes achieve their potential and and minimise the opportunity to do things that will ultimately bite bite back in in the long term. Mm. Pogacar's coach talked about metabolomics as this oh, yeah. thing that they'd been employing, which has given him the edge. Have, have you spent much time looking into this, and and is it valid or is it just too early to say? What, what's your understanding of metabolomics? Because it's quite a bit of a big area. Well. For the limited reading I was able to do, it's got something to do with analysing the DNA in the body and looking at various different things uh, within um, metabolic processes to try and gain an edge. I I guess that's in terms of response to training and nutrition for for performance and recovery. Yeah, it's 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 just how how close. Sorry, before you start, how close am I to getting it right there, or am I way off? You're 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 on it. You've summarised it quite clearly. for, for a non-scientist and, a, and not a professor in the field, it's it's the best way to describe it is in the context of the evolution of like how we monitor biology, right? So, you know, you talked earlier about continuous glucose monitors. So, you know, you, you go in a laboratory 20 years ago and when I was studying in this and you'd measure blood lactate, you'd measure glucose, you'd measure insulin, you'd measure, and you'd take blood samples to do that. But the body is a highly complex metabolic system, right, that has hormones and, and chemicals and, and, and molecules going around that have multiple regulatory um, um, roles and, and responses. And, and to simply like, you know, a lot of our fundamental understanding is, is based upon methods of how we monitor that. And technology is involved where we can, from a blood sample, get a whole picture of, of, of what things are switched on and off from a genomic level to what they call a phenotypic level. So genome is what your genes are, phenotype is how they're expressed. So that's a combination of your your maturation and the environment you live in, right? So you genetically could be predisposed to having a high VO2 max, but unless you do the training, it doesn't express itself. Right. So the methods in trying to figure that out are on the way. So my question back to someone like Inigo is like, do you really think the science of metabolomics in general is at a point where you can make that interpretation? To give you another example, I've spoken to companies and, and uh, that are heavily involved in driving nutrigenomics, which is to say, well, everyone has um, a gen- genomic that, that is unique to them, which has impact upon how they how they digest, use, utilize nutrients. So, so how their nutrition differs. And now there are companies, and this will happen in the next five to ten years, where you get a, a DNA analysis that says yes, you have an inability to metabolize choline or caffeine or, I mean, the caffeine question is quite well understood now. We know there are polymorphisms that will dictate how you metabolize caffeine, whether you're a fast metabolizer or a slow metabolizer. And that's actually used in sport now where you'll understand why one athlete can take a high caffeine dose before uh, an evening race 
and, and get to sleep fine afterwards, whereas another athlete could suffer awake all night. And that's maybe down to a genetic predisposition. So yeah, it's 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 um it's really interesting and we need to embrace that in the same way we need to embrace big data for understanding how the science is applied. But I don't think that science has that the methodology is quite robust enough for us to be able to see it in a, what you would call a, um, a, a homogeneous distribution of people. So like normal people, not outliers like elite athletes. So when you take where this research is being applied to the general population and then try and apply it to, to Tadej Podjika, it's like, well, it's great. And, and with someone like Inigo's expertise, he's probably one of the few guys in the world that's best placed to use this technology. But we don't know what the benchmarks are. You know, we don't know how it's going to be mm. going to be um, effective. But it's certainly an evolving area and, and really interesting. I'm looking at the time, Dave. I uh, yeah. we've, covered, we've covered a lot today, and I've still got a couple of questions for you. I did. I did want to touch on nutrition in in pro cycling, and sure. um, um, and maybe then also talk about some of the things that you've learned from working with the pro peloton that we can apply to weekend warriors. I'm not sure we're going to have time for that. Maybe we can loop back and talk about nutrition in sport at a later sure. date. Let's 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 finish off because I think this could still lead to a few rabbit holes. Let's finish off by um, talking about how the lessons you've learn from elite sports can be applied to those of us who have other considerations in our life like working and, and children and families etc um so let's let's start with training um you know what what can what can the recreational cyclists and triathletes do um to improve their performance that you've learned from elite sport which things work and which things are just marketing hype well you've got to Slightly loaded question, yeah. So marketing <laughs> hype exists, and it and it does often detract from, yeah, uh, you know, the, the, the nuts and bolts of what is training. And yeah, I think that's it. A lot of these stuff that, like I said before, performance is multifactorial, but naturally we think of it as one factor, and often marketing jumps on that and it says it's you know it's this it's this mm. training technique, it's this particular tool that monitors your training, and this algorithm that, that's the game changer. There is no it's cliche, but there is no substitute for hard work. You know, it's you don't get anything for free, really, and, and that's what you have to do. One of the things that I've seen in professional athletes is that at the end of the day, they're, they're no different. There's one main difference to, to from from um, weekend warriors to them, and they're responders. They don't. They do more training. They d- can train harder, um, but that's just a product of the fact they're full time athletes. They respond. You go on a training camp. You know, you might be a weekend warrior that goes away to a warm weather training camp. It's no different to a professional athlete. It's just that. The professional athlete on day three is already starting to adapt, whereas the weekend warrior has to take a chair into the shower to recover. So it's just that's the difference, right? So it, it, these these people are fortunate enough to respond, and, and then that's expressed in, in how they perform. But what you notice with them is they still need to do the work and and consistency. And that's the one thing I've seen is that even if you've got limited time, don't cr- don't you know don't don't cram all of your exercise into one weekend or one training camp you get more bang for your buck if you're consistent week after week after week because you get those chronic adaptations you get that basis which carries you through it's 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 not about you know trying to hit everything it's 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 ultimately driven by stress response it's about creating that stress and maximizing the response which is that super compensation so talking about responses and responding uh, you've said that elite athletes just generally are better responders is there anything that we can do to manipulate how fast we respond. Because I guess, I guess if we're not sleeping 
as much as we should, that's going to slow down our responses. If we're eating junk food rather than real food, that will slow down our responses. So is it just a simple matter of reversing those habits to to make sure that we maximise our own uh, level of response? Or are there other things that we can do as well? Uh, yeah, it, absolutely. It's about not being too distracted with current fads, whether it be low carb, whether it be keto, whether it be, you know, that's just nutrition examples, you know, types of training, which, which it's about just having the fundamentals, right? It's like, well, I've got to do X amount of work. I need to make, to be able to do that, I need to be fueled correctly for it and rested for it. So sleep and, and nutrition, and I need to maximize my recovery because if I don't, then I might, I might impact upon how I get best bang for my buck from that session. So it's just about going in, remembering the fundamentals, remembering that you need to do the work. If you're prepared to do that work and you allow your body to recover from that work, you will get the best return on investment. Just want to talk about strength training with you. I mean, I think you and I both understand that strength training is important for human function and for athletic function, but in cycling particularly, um, I think probably it's something that's more prevalent now. In years gone by, it would all be just about how much cycling you can get in in order to perform better. Um, mm-hmm. How how many of the pro teams now have specialist strength and conditioning coaches, and do, do the riders now see a value in this? And in what way is it? In what way is this um, delivered to them? What you know? What sort of train? What sort of strength and conditioning work are they actually doing? Certainly for some of the top teams, it is it is more commonplace. I know a lot of cyclists actually have private you know, relationships with strength and conditioning coaches. Um, to answer that question, you know, I go back to my fundamental philosophy is understanding performance demands, right? So is there a place for strength training? Well, what are you trying to achieve? You know, if we try and build this up from the ground, then we're going to get a little lost in all the different options out there. But what's our end goal? What does it look like? So if you're taking a professional road cyclist, you know, that to, to, to what extent strength and explosive power drives performance depends on what their role is, what their phenotype is. Uh-huh. If you're a sprinter, then there's perhaps arguably more necessity for it than a, than a pure climber. If it's a hypertrophy-based strength programming, then you know it's a weight-based sport, so do you want to be carrying weight? So coming back, you might find that the general conclusion is that it's important for prehabilitation, for compensating for what is arguably an unnatural body position to, to perform sport. You know, We're not necessarily designed to ride bikes, we're designed to run and walk. So there are merits to it being a complementary training program to core bike-based training. That's probably why it hasn't been dominant in the sport. But because of its potential benefits to manage training load and manage injury, then teams have invested in that. So the type of strength training that cyclists will do will be your typical sort of core and and, 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 and closed loop work. So they might find that a guy who's a sprinter or a time trialist or someone who wants to develop strength specifically for that discipline will do, do strength training and typically try and maintain it through the year which is tough when you're competing as much as they are, because we know we, you lose the adaptations if you stop, particularly strength adaptations. Um, and the others will do, you know, maybe two or three times a week, um, general conditioning, core and, and stability work to complement their existing training and help to prevent injury and, mm. and, and associated problems. Yeah, I always think that um, perhaps, I mean, again, it's it's a, a double-edged sword in, in age group stuff, particularly with older athletes, because there's a human considerations, you know, counteracting the aging process and all of that. But for professional athletes, it's, it's like, if you're a member looking at Katie Ledecky's training program and the, and the coach is saying, well, she has a strength and conditioning coach, but his job is just to make sure that she's in the condition so she can turn up to the pool mm-hmm. every day. I don't want mm-hmm. her having a, being able to bench press her own body weight or squat twice her body weight. I just want to make sure that, 
there's nothing that's leading to injury, so she misses sessions. And that's it. And we have to have a very clear contracting there between coach and athlete about what's required. I guess it's the same in cycling as well, is how many days of training or racing are missed through, not through crashes, because that's uh, something that you um, you can't control necessarily, but mm. because somebody's got a bad back mm. or because somebody's tight in the shoulders, which are causing them to be too hunched over mm. and so they're not breathing properly. So you want you want them to be able to physically turn up and show up so that they can maintain that consistency you refer to. Cycling is a sport that's perhaps a little bit behind the curve on that because it's historically had very sort of reactive treatment or physical therapy with chiropractors and osteopaths and, and cyclists inherently aren't necessarily familiar with that sort of prehabilitation work and taking the time on a, on a routine basis to do that stuff to help prevent the problem rather than deal with the repercussions of it. But it comes back to, you know, something that really is a, a mantra that I have, which is like understanding the weighting of performance factors. And that is, you know, how important is it and how likely is it to have an impact upon the performance at the end of the day? So, yeah, if you take a cyclist that's racing for up to five, six hours or weeks, week after week then where strength isn't as big a component it doesn't have as much weighting as the other type of training but you can argue that there's a case for it as you said around making sure they can manage training load and, and, and recover day in day out in multi-day events so it's weighting is there it's perhaps not high weighting but it's not a low weighting it's in the middle somewhere what about nutrition then um, if we talked about your nutrition role and your nutrition roach for the average age grouper what sort of elements would you say that it's important for them to focus on when it comes to nutrition in terms of well day-to-day nutrition probably quite a simple one but in terms of fueling endurance sport because again you've referred to keto and some of the fad diets that are out there that people favor so nutrition is now i'm not a dietitian so i'm not someone to ask on in, in terms of you know menus and, and food types in that regard but my, my background's in nutrition and biology physiology um but i think whole foods are becoming more and more popular and I'm you're speaking to someone who's worked uh, you know in in a sports nutrition supplement company and and had you know done research on both sides for that and worked with athletes where you advocate that but cycling is an interesting sport because of the variable intensity where you have the possibility to take whole foods during racing which isn't always practical in triathlon Mm. um so I think that's the basis like having a balanced diet it is cliche is important um the whole you know fad diet endemic that we deal with is one common theme there, and that's they all normally have some element of calorie restriction. And I think that's just as a product of... Now, there is science behind them all, as a caveat, but ultimately, there's one common factor, and they all restrict food choice, whether it be low-carb, whether it be keto, uh, uh, there are many. Um, And that kind of makes sense in today's society, particularly Western society, where food is everywhere. (laughs) every yeah. time so yeah. it's, it's just a behavior thing right so if you get someone to buy into a concept or a you know philosophy or a, whether it's scientifically supported or not restricting food choice is going to restrict calorie intake and you're going to see rewards um reality is is that you know if you if you want to be completely lucid about it it's, you need that balance diet. you need to make sure you're meeting all of your nutritional needs which is not hard in in this society with the amount of food that's available as long as you don't have any allergies or, or, or deficiencies. Um, and then on top of that, it's about fueling for performance. And I think that you should always think to people get weight obsessed or body composition obsessed. That should always be a product of your training and nutrition. It shouldn't be that body composition drives training and nutrition. It should be the other way around. So fuel for the training, you know, is even pro, pro athletes, pro endurance athletes 
aren't eating enough carbohydrate. We know that now. And a lot of the gains in, in performance you've seen in recent years is because fueling what was well understood in the scientific community hasn't been applied as much as well as it should have been. And now it is. And now you're seeing these exceptional endurance performances, which are a product of through technology and sports to supplements improving. But ultimately, an understanding is we've got to try and hit 100 grams per hour because that's going to help you perform. Or we need to understand the balance between fat and carbohydrate oxygenation during performance. So it's it's not about getting a little too distracted with some of these minor ergogenics. It's about the fundamentals. That word keeps cropping up, doesn't it? Um, not just with yourself, but with all of the people that are operating at the top level, whether scientists or coaches or athletes, is fundamentals, hard work, consistency, getting the basics right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's cliche, I know, and, and, and I think that's maybe a little bit because we all get a bit frustrated when, when the media jumps on the back of you know, some tech or some some innovation. It's like, well, actually, there's a bunch of people behind the scenes, not not excluding the athlete, that bust their balls day in, day out. And we don't want it to be just sort of dismissed by some, you know, company that's come up with some innovation. It's multifactorial, but then the common theme is exactly what you said. It's just getting those basic things and understanding that without those, it doesn't matter how well you polish it, it's still a turd. <laughs> Great way to finish, David. <laughs> Great way to finish. Listen, um, thanks so much. Uh, it's been great catching up. There's definitely enough ammo in there for uh, uh, at least one more podcast, maybe a few more when we can dive deep in. Maybe maybe what we'll do is we'll get the listeners to send some questions in and then we'll do a Q&A. How about that? Cool. That'd be great. Yeah, I think that'd be fantastic. David Bailey, sports physiologist, coach to elite cyclists, general man who knows a lot about nutrition and sports science. Thank you very much for joining us today. I've really appreciated the conversation. My pleasure, Simon. It's been, it's been awesome. Great to catch up. Thanks. Have a lovely festive season out there. Oh, actually, you're coming back to the UK, aren't you? So I hope that travel in theory, restrictions, yes, in I hope theory. That travel, travel restrictions don't hinder your travel and enjoyment too much. Me too. Me too. Thanks. All the Simon. best. Take care. Bye-bye now. Bye. Thank you to Dave for joining me on today's High Performance Human Podcast. There are links to all of today's discussion topics in the show notes below. I'd also like to take a moment to say thank you to Beth and Sam who've been helping me put together this show every episode for the last four years. So I'm looking forward to working with both of you and continuing that into 2022 and beyond. Now, whether this is your first time or you're a regular listener, I really appreciate you listening to the High Performance Human Podcast. You can join the conversation today by subscribing for free on iTunes so you never miss an episode. And you can also join our High Performance Human Podcast facebook page all right that's it not just for this week but for this year it's been a proper weird one hasn't it i'm really optimistic that 2022 will be better so i'll be back next week next year if you like with more great guests but for now i hope you have a good new year celebration whatever you're doing have a bit of fun if you can and i'll see you on the other side 